Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News, and I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, August 11th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast, even in August, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Rachel Kors of Stat News. Good morning. Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Hi, Julie. And Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi there, Julie. So no interview today, but more than enough news, so we will get right to it. It's been a very big week for the Biden administration. The president finally tested negative for COVID following his rebound infection and managed to have signing ceremonies at the White House for the CHIPS bill to address the semiconductor shortage and authorize funding for research, plus the PACT Act that will finally provide health benefits to veterans who got sick from exposure to toxic burn pits overseas. And barring something unforeseen, seen, next week he'll get to sign the Inflation Reduction Act, which most experts say won't really do that much to reduce inflation, but which does represent some major steps forward on health and climate change. The bill passed the Senate in a rare Sunday session, and it's scheduled for a House vote on Friday. Rachel, we have talked at length about what's in this bill for health care, some provisions that would allow Medicare to negotiate prices of some drugs and limit out-of-pocket costs for Medicare patients, and to extend for three years those expanded subsidies for premiums under the Affordable Care Act, but not every health provision made it into the final bill. So catch us up on how this thing finally made it across the Senate finish line and what we can expect in the House. Sure. There was some chaos, I think, as we kind of expected with the Senate parliamentarian. I had been waiting for this ruling on the commercial market, essentially, side of the drug pricing. And I know Alice had to for since like November, December time, because I think everyone kind of expected that there might be some challenges there. I'm going to give my little reconciliation lecture because nobody understands it about (laughs) the budget process, which is the budget process consists of the appropriations, which are the spending bills, and taxes. And the way the budget works, there's mandatory spending that is not touched by the appropriations. So what reconciliation is, it's a way to reconcile the budget document, the the budget resolution that Congress passes with mandatory spending and taxes. So therefore, if it's not mandatory spending, it generally can't go in reconciliation. Okay, Rachel, pick up where you were. (laughs) Sure. So I think there were two big kind of provisions that, like Medicare is mandatory spending, so that is pretty baseline. Everyone kind of expected that those policies would continue. Right. You can, you can pretty much do anything you want to Medicare in reconciliation and anything right. you want to Medicaid in reconciliation. Mostly. Yes. Right. But there there were a couple provisions Democrats were trying to advance that would have affected employer-sponsored insurance, people who use, I think, the ACA markets as well. So just non-Medicare patients is kind of how they were described. And one of them would have applied to a policy that penalizes drug makers for hiking their prices faster than inflation. So the formula they kind of used to calculate those penalties had Medicare units and private market units of like drugs in the formula initially, but the parliamentarian said they couldn't count the commercial units. So 
the Democrats just took it out when she ruled against it. The parliamentarian also ruled against a second policy that would have capped costs for insulin for patients who have private market insurance at $35 a month. That she also ruled against, but Democrats decided to just stick it in the bill anyway and make Republicans vote to strike it out, which they did. There were a lot of headlines that were negative that Republicans vote against insulin cap. And it's true. If Republicans had given it 60 votes, then it could have passed into law. That's right. I mean, the, the other thing to remember about reconciliation is that you can have things that don't technically belong in reconciliation by, quote unquote, waiving the Budget Act, but you need 60 votes to waive the Budget Act. I've seen it happen. And if they had 60 bills. votes, they wouldn't have done a reconciliation <laughs> bill in the first place. Exactly. Well, that, there was all this I wanted to talk about insulin because mm-hmm. insulin had been moving on a separate track, right, because there was a bipartisan bill that they thought they had 60 votes for. Is it possible that I mean, we should say this bill will cap insulin costs for Medicare patients at $35 a month, but it won't cap insulin costs for anybody who's not on Medicare. Medicaid is it's a whole different thing. I mean, they're they're already protected. But for people in the private market, it won't affect them. Could there still be legislation coming to cap insulin costs for everybody else? Yes, there, there could be. But I think that it will mirror what we just saw, where the purpose is to put the bill on the floor and hold a big splashy vote so they can show Republicans voting against it and run ads about Republicans voting against it. If there was sufficient Republican support to get it across the finish line, it would have happened months ago. I mean, we all remember when Schumer promised to vote on that around Easter and that never happened. And so this is the the Collins Shaheen bipartisan effort that really never went anywhere because of a lack of support on the GOP side. That said, the other thing I've been hearing from patient advocacy groups saying, yes, we understand that Republicans are the ones that blocked putting the cap on out-of-pocket costs in the commercial market where most people get their insurance and limiting it just to Medicare. However, they do fault Democrats for not including in the reconciliation bill itself what was in the House version, which specifically told Medicare to negotiate insulin prices. They said that wouldn't have been a parliamentarian problem because it just involved Medicare. We don't understand why they didn't do it. Yes, it's good to cap out-of-pocket costs, but that doesn't get at the underlying costs of the drug. And they're a bit baffled as to why that didn't go in the bill itself. One of the issues here is that when you only deal with Medicare, you get this what we call cost shifting. Usually cost shifting has to do with hospitals. They don't make enough for Medicare. They raise their prices for the privately insured. There's concern that the same thing could happen in the drug market, right? Yeah. So there has been some concern about that. But actually, a lot of the people that analyze and follow this market have basically said they think there's probably fairly little wiggle room for that because basically the idea that drug companies can raise the prices more in the private market because of this Medicare negotiation implies they're sort of leaving something on the table now when they do their negotiations in the private sector. And there's No reason to think drug companies are being nicer to the private commercial markets in the U.S. just because they get more money potentially from Medicare now than they'll be getting under the bill. So I think people really at all sides of this debate don't see that as a huge threat. I mean, there are other ways the drug companies may be able to sort of offset the threats in this bill, and some of them probably more than others. One thing CBO looked at, which was, do they just raise their initial launch prices of the drug? Because this bill doesn't do anything to prevent them from sort of launching their initial prices higher, to deal with not being able to raise them as much year over year, or to deal with negotiations down the line. And CBO seems to think there'd be some kind of minimal impact, although eventually 
that would be made up for with negotiations. And actually, Medicaid might be the hardest hit by that based on how their rebates work. And then Part D and probably the commercial market would actually be less impacted in some ways by that happening. In many ways, the drug provisions of this bill remind me of the Affordable Care Act. It was much less than it started out to be and much, much less than most Democrats wanted, but still, as Biden once so famously put it, a BFD. So where does this rank in sort of the pantheon of efforts to control prescription drug prices? Obviously, the drug industry didn't want this to happen. If you've turned on cable TV in the last two weeks, you've seen all of these, you know, the world's going to end ads. Some progressives have sort of said all along that, you know, the drug industry is going to fight this tooth and nail and say the sky is falling, whether we pass HR3, which was much much more sweeping, or this much narrower version. And so they were bringing that up to argue for the much more sweeping version. Of course, all along, they knew they were going to be hampered by their narrow margins in the House and Senate. And in both the House and Senate, there were more industry-friendly Democratic members who demanded concessions and demanded things get watered down and fewer drugs, longer delays until negotiation starts. So that's what we end up with now. But I think like the Affordable Care Act, like Medicare and Medicaid itself, this is likely to grow in the years ahead. I was talking to some experts who were predicting that, you know, next time they need a little pay for here and there, they can just add a couple drugs. They can just shorten the delay until negotiation starts. They can sort of dig away at it, dig away at it to make it expand over over time. So we'll, we'll have to see. Of course, it depends uh, which party controls Congress. But this is literally the nose under the camel's tent, right, as far as the drug industry is concerned? Yes, exactly. It's changing this precedent that has been in place for decades to not allow negotiation. And so it, it, it could really be a tipping point. The biggest challenge is that it won't start for so long that not only will people not feel the effects, Democrats are going to go out and campaign and say, we lowered your drug prices. And people are going to say, no, you didn't. <laughs> I'm, I'm paying the same. What are you talking about? And we saw that. It's funny. We saw that both with the Affordable Care Act, which legitimately took years to get up and running, and with the Medicare drug bill that the Republicans passed in 2003 that didn't start until 2006. Partly it doesn't start, the negotiation part doesn't start until 2026 because it's literally going to take them that long. Right. And I think it just depends kind of where you sit too as to how big of a deal this is. If you're sitting looking from the HR3 angle at how much bigger this started out, it looks kind of small. But if you're looking, sitting in the pharma almost never loses side. This is a really big deal. And I think the last kind of big loss that they had was the donut hole. You know, they had a little bit more liability in one phase of the Medicare Part D drug benefit. And I think it's just kind of important to keep that larger perspective that this was the third rail. This was something they fought for a long time. They've just taken a scorched earth approach to any even minor change to what prices they can charge. So obviously, just wanted to put that out there that it's a it's a big deal in that sense. And I think we, it can't go without mentioning that this is a 50-50 Senate that they had to wait. God, it was like a half an hour for the vice president to show up to break the ties. Like, didn't she know they were going to need her? Um, but I mean, that's that this was not a small thing to get this done, considering they had Bernie Sanders on the one hand pounding the desk saying it didn't go far enough and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, you know, saying that it went too far. 
I feel like we sort of need to stop and say, wow, this was kind of impressive, just an impressive political feat to get this done. And it almost seemed like it was going to collapse. I mean, as as we know, many things do. It's not like this is unique, but it almost seemed like it was going to collapse many, many times and it came back many, and many it's still times. alive. And I mean, the White House seems you know pretty confident they're not going to have any troubles in the House. They're already sort of planning how they're going to communicate this victory. And I think the other thing we didn't talk about is like, there are some elements of this bill that people are going to feel fairly fast, like the Medicare redesign, which I think is a bigger deal than most people have focused on. And perhaps the part D cap. Right. So that seniors will have a maximum amount they can spend each year. And that's a really big deal for people that go above that cap. And that's kind of an industry friendly thing. Pharma doesn't necessarily mind that, though. They're paying a little bit more to have that in there. I think there are things in here that people are going to feel and Democrats will get credit for pretty fast. Eventually, as Nancy Pelosi also once famously said about another bill, they'll have to read it to find out what's in it. All right, well, let us move on to abortion. Um, Alice, you were in Kansas last week when voters there resoundingly uh, uh, protected abortion rights in the state. What was that like? I take it it was as unexpected to those of you who were there as it was to those of us who were outside looking in, right? Absolutely. I was there at the watch party in Kansas City when the results were called and everybody was screaming and crying for joy. This was the progressive side, the vote no campaign. And what really shocked people was not that they won. They had been, you know, working very hard. They got a lot of big donations from Planned Parenthood and other national groups. They had been canvassing in 100 degree heat. But the real shocker was that it wasn't even close. It was 20 point difference in a very red state, very conservative state. The no campaign didn't only do well in the urban areas and suburbs where they expected to do well, but they did well even in pretty red, pretty rural counties, such as along the Colorado border. These ballot initiatives are going to be so revealing in this and other states going into the fall, because for a while we keep hearing claims about, you know, how many Democrats might oppose abortion, how many Republicans might actually support abortion, how the split among voters doesn't necessarily reflect the split among lawmakers and people in power. But now we can really see that for the first time because voters are able to vote separately on the policy itself and the candidate they want to be in office. This is really changing uh, a lot of people's calculus. You know, we have several states that are already set to have their own abortion referendums this fall in November, and there are already talks of trying to get things on the ballot in other states in 2023, 2024, whenever they can. I will say, you know, this is a tactic that is not possible in every state. Not every state even allows uh, people to to put something on the ballot like this. Even the states that do, some of them are moving right now to make it harder to get on the ballot, you know, raising the signature threshold, etc. And so this won't be possible everywhere. But I think the results in Kansas are making people uh, reconsider where and when it could be possible in the future. And as I said last week, I was in South Dakota in both 2006 and 2008, where they also, another extremely red state, where they defeated abortion bans. Again, voters got a chance to vote just sort of yes, no on, it was a a very strict ban in 2006. And then they tried to make it a little bit less strict, thinking that that would help pass in 2008. And both times it lost also 
convincingly. I, I went back and looked. It was like 55-45. So yeah, we've got a, a number of states that we will see in November whether voters are, are going to go the same way. Meanwhile, Congress wasn't the only legislature that was busy legislating last weekend. The Indiana legislature late Friday made Indiana the first state to pass an abortion ban since the overturn of Roe v. Wade in June. Those other states' bans had been passed prior to the Supreme Court's ruling. And the Republican governor signed it just hours later. It's set to take effect next month. Alice, it's a pretty strict ban, right? Yes. What we've been reporting on is it's fascinating that there are these very strict bans that states are passing. You know, Indiana's the first, but West Virginia could be right behind them. And yet (laughs) a lot of anti-abortion advocates in these states and lawmakers that are on the far right are really dissatisfied with where they are ending up and saying it's not strict enough. And there are too many exemptions for things like rape and incest and the penalties for doctors violating the laws are not harsh enough. Um, and so there's there's some real angst going on. It's just fascinating that like we've seen on so many fronts, like we've seen with, you know, Republicans pledging to repeal and replace Obamacare. It's so different to when you're out of power or not able to do something because of the courts to make these sweeping promises and saying we're going to be on all abortion. And then when it actually comes time to do it, all of the scrutiny is on you. It's it's a lot harder. And there are a lot more uh, fights and disagreements about how to move forward. Um, and I think we're likely to see a lot of that. I think I wasn't expecting how much further particularly state lawmakers were prepared to go when the court overturned Roe. I mean, you know, they obviously a lot of these states had trigger laws that they've passed. Some of them obviously go back 100 years or more, but many of them go back just two or three years in the anticipation that the court would soon overturn Roe and that they would be ready. And I get those. But I, I think I'm surprised that states like Indiana and West Virginia are jumping in and saying, let's double down on this, even though there seems to be a backlash. I mean, it seems like the sides are getting further apart rather than closer together, which is, I think, not what the Supreme Court had in mind. <laughs> well, we we always knew that the argument that, you know, returning this issue to the states would calm everything down and, and solve all the problems was always <laughs> a fantasy. And, you know, instead of having one big federal fight over this, we are now having 50 plus um, individual state fights about this. And that's only going to continue. Yeah. So we've talked also at length about how private companies are reacting to these state bans. In Indiana, Eli Lilly, the Indianapolis-based drug company that gave us, among other things, Trump's Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, put out a statement Saturday criticizing the ban, suggesting that they would be looking to expand their workforce outside the state. But it turns out that Lilly and another big Indiana-based tech company, Cummins, Inc., both issued their statements after the bill was signed, and both firms have given considerable contributions to the lawmakers that passed uh, and the governor who signed the ban. Companies trying to have it both ways here? I think companies are trying to have it both ways. And I think that this, this is what I was saying about separating the policy from the candidate, because when people vote for a very conservative Republican candidate, you don't necessarily know if you're voting for their abortion beliefs or if you're voting for their tax cut beliefs or whatnot. And that is true of voters. And that is true of companies that give these big donations. And so now they are sort of forced to reckon with the repercussions of that. And they are finding that while they might love their tax cut positions on other issues, 
they are either inadvertently or on purpose, you know, supporting policies that are could impact their their business in a negative way and their employees. Um, so I think that we're really seeing some companies wrestle with this and we are seeing them take measures that don't really get at their underlying support and their role in bringing about these laws in the first place. Instead of saying, you know, we won't support any lawmaker who who is for these laws. Instead, they're saying, oh, we are just going to shield our own workers from the impacts of them rather than protecting all people in these states from them. I remember after January 6th, there were a number of companies that sort of in the wake of the, the insurrection said, you know, we're not going to give money to the Republicans. And that lasted all of about two weeks, if I remember correctly. Um, <laughs> I, I think companies just sort of like to hedge their bets. It's like, who, whoever's in charge, we want to have given them money so that they will listen to us. But it does feel a little bit, it's like, they could have weighed in before the bill passed because, as we said, they've been fighting about it. All right. Well, finally, from the I told you so file, um, more stories this week from Wisconsin and Texas, among others, of women pregnant with wanted pregnancies experiencing complications and having their health and lives endangered because doctors are caught between conflicting bans and medical ethics and more cases of women who can't get drugs like methotrexate for rheumatoid arthritis and other conditions because pharmacists fear that it might be used for abortion. Anti-abortion groups say doctors and pharmacists are overreacting and that these things are not illegal under their bans. But lawyers seem not so sure. Alice, you think we're going to see clarifications here in any of these states? Or are we just going to continue to have this trickle of sad stories about women who basically can't get health care because their providers are worried about losing their licenses and being thrown in jail. I think the pressure would really have to mount even more than it already has to get some of these state legislatures to backtrack. Already, we are seeing, you know, in the creation of new laws when there are proposals for more exemptions for rape and incest, moderating the criminal penalties on doctors, we are seeing that leading to accusations and finger pointing. And so I think people will be really hesitant to give any fodder to that kind of behavior. And so I think for now, they are just continuing to insist that this is not their fault, that this is a misinterpretation, that these people could get the treatment they need. But I think that they are reckoning with it's one thing to put something on paper, but it's another thing to consider the chilling effect and to consider that a doctor is not going to risk their livelihood and their freedom in order to make even what they think is a perfectly legal and ethically correct medical decision. And so this is what advocates on the other side were warning about before this. <laughs> we got a sneak preview of this in Texas, which implemented its ban before the Supreme Court ruling. And I, I think these cases are only going to continue. It's, it's just also shining a light on something that pregnancy loss, pregnancy challenges are really, really common. And we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. But losing a wanted pregnancy because of a medical emergency, even later in pregnancy, it happens and it happens kind of a lot. And, you know, other things that are uncomfortable and horrifying to talk about, like children 
being raped and getting pregnant is more common than we thought. (laughs) So these cases, while they might seem like extreme outliers, are not as extreme and are not as far outside what happens as we thought. And whether laws will change to reflect that remains to be seen. Yeah, I'm, I'm finding an awful lot of men getting an awful lot of education in biology really fast this year. All right, well, let us move on to this week in infectious diseases. We will start with monkeypox, for which the government seems every bit as disorganized as it was with COVID, or is that my imagination? Sarah, can you explain what's happening with the monkeypox vaccines and with the monkeypox treatments, for that matter? Sure. So I'll start with the monkeypox vaccines because there's more, I would say, a little more government action there. This week, Health and Human Services Secretary formally um, did sort of another public health declaration that is separate from the one they did last week. This one allows the FDA to issue emergency use authorizations. He did this very narrowly, so it's only for vaccines, in this case, for monkeypox. And as I think a lot of our readers know from COVID, it's sort of a lower standard to get, you know, a drug or device or vaccine approved. So you end up with a little less data or a little less confidence about the product. The idea is, but it's an emergency and we need to help people now. So we're willing to take that little bit of a higher risk. And what they did was we have the vaccine that's already approved for monkeypox, but we don't have a lot of it. So there was a study done in 2015 that showed that if you administered the vaccine a different way intradermally instead of what is they now do is subcutaneously, and you can give a fifth of the dose and it produces the same immune response in people. So they decided this seems like a good plan. Let's allow that to go forward. So basically, we're going to have five times as many vaccines as we did otherwise. Right. Exactly. You can divide it by five. Now, I've asked the government some questions like, because it's actually not so easy to administer the other way. Less people are trained and know how to do this. You have to be a bit more careful to make sure you don't accidentally underdose people. The CDC says they're going to do trainings and so forth, but it'll be interesting to track and see how quickly do they switch over, how many of the doses actually go out through this new administration just because there are so many implementation challenges. I assume states and localities are incentivized to learn how to do this because the more people they can serve, the happier you would think (laughs) their people will be. But it's not like flipping on a light switch. And there's been some backlash to this plan, which I find sort of interesting because people have been so critical of FDA for moving too slowly and being too conservative in COVID in some cases. And here they are being willing to say, okay, you know, we don't have perfect information, but we're pretty happy, (laughs) you know, with it. And we'll be kind of, you know, I don't want to say experimental, but, you know, we'll, we'll make a good guess. And we think this is the benefits outweigh the risks here. But some people are pointing out, you know, this is based on one study. We don't even know actually going backtracking a bit if this vaccine, what the effectiveness is in humans overall. So the vaccine was actually approved for smallpox and monkeypox a while back. There, you know, monkeypox is not um, very common in the U.S. and even globally. So they had some studies in animals that showed it was effective. And then they did a similar study to what they've used to um, allow this dose bearing, which is they look at an immune response. So does your body produce a response? But that doesn't necessarily tell us what's going to happen. Are you going to get sick if you're exposed to monkeypox or be prevented from getting sick? Are you going to get sick, but not as well? So there's been some criticism just about the overall data gaps here. Even um, in Stat News, in Rachel's publication, there was an op-ed from two former prominent FDA officials basically saying, like, this isn't a great idea. We already don't know as much as we want to know about this vaccine. This is going to make it even harder to get the information we need. So we'll see what happens there. 
Like I mentioned early on, on the therapeutic side, the interesting thing is that the HHS secretary made that public health emergency declaration for the FDA authority on emergency use so narrow that it doesn't apply to therapeutics. And this is another thing where like, I'm still trying to like press government people to be more clear about what their thinking is and why they didn't make it more widely accessible because it's not that there isn't a treatment need or <laughs> there aren't people that would want to maybe have this lower authority to get more treatment out there. And in fact, there's one antiviral drug that was approved in the U.S. under, again, the animal rule for smallpox that we have been making use of for some people with monkeypox through what's known as expanded access or compassionate use. And that's sort of a complicated pathway where doctors can get people some access of this drug through the strategic national stockpile. But they have to fill out a lot of paperwork. And as part of that commitment, they have to kind of track people's outcomes more closely than they might otherwise so that the government can collect some data on what's happening. It's a burden on the providers, in other words. Right. And even sometimes on the patients and because of some of the follow-up visits that government wants. Now, HHS, um, CDC, and FDA are trying to make that burden smaller to let more people get access this way. But if, in theory, FDA was willing to give an emergency use authorization for this drug, TPOX, it would really open the floodgates and probably potentially any monkeypox patient who wanted it could get access. Now, FDA, NIH, and CDC leaders in this space wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine Last week, before we really even had the sense that there was going to be a public health emergency formally declared overall, that they really wanted randomized controlled clinical trial data with this drug to know if it works in monkeypox patients with this version of monkeypox in humans. And it seems like they were less willing to be flexible on the therapeutic side. So maybe that's why HHS Secretary Becerra didn't put them in that awkward situation of having the option to do an EUA, but not. I don't know what's going to happen here, but I love covering these issues because there's such a fascinating tension in our society between we want things fast, we want things faster. And then when you start telling people, well, but here are the data gaps, then they get criticized on that end. So FDA is getting pushed and pulled both places here. You know, they didn't move fast enough during COVID. They're sort of trying to move faster here. But then once they do, there's criticism on that end. So it's, it's hard for them to win these days. Yes, the American public is, you know, we, we want it and we want it fully tested. We want to make sure it's safe, but we want you to test it in five minutes because we want it right now. I guess that's the continual tension in public health. Well, meanwhile, COVID is most definitely still with us. Alice, you had a really interesting piece this week about what lawmakers are not doing about long COVID, which I have seen described as a, quote, mass disabling event, which is kind of ominous. Um, why such inaction? Is it one of those things like pregnancy complications that we just don't want to think about? I think that's part of it for sure. So, yeah. And I wrote most of the piece uh, months ago, and we only finally published it this week. And I didn't have to update it that much because Congress has not done anything in the last few months related to long COVID. So all my previous reporting was still relevant. Look, there's a lot going on. So one, the main barrier is that there is just not a lot of Republican interest and support for spending a lot of money to increase access to treatment for people with long COVID. And there's really not a lot of support to meet demands from the growing long COVID community for financial support. They're saying Look, you know, the research that NIH has begun is great and needed, but how are we going to survive until the research comes up with something for us? How are we supposed to pay our rent? A lot of these people can't work. There is new data out about just the 
large and growing number of people who can't work because their long COVID symptoms are so debilitating. They also have trouble qualifying for, you know, existing programs like Social Security Disability. Which has a 24-month waiting period. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and so there are also all of these demands um, that Congress look into making those programs more easily accessible for people with long COVID. And there's just really not a lot of action. So yes, no Republican has co-sponsored any of the bills that have been introduced to deal with long COVID. But also, Democratic leadership has not really thrown their weight behind these bills and moved them forward for hearings and markups in the House or the Senate, really. In the Senate, some provisions were included in the bipartisan pandemic preparedness bill, which passed out of committee and is now in a big shruggy <laughs> position <laughs> that we, yeah. Not, not sure if and when that is going to move. Right. We'll take it up when we come back in September. And right. that long list of things that they will take up when they come back in September. Sarah, I wonder, you know, is sort of the focus on monkeypox taking away from some of the focus on, on COVID? I mean, obviously, COVID is still here. There are, you know, we're about to start another school year. I see all these angst-ridden tweets from parents who don't know what to do with their kids going back to school. I feel like the federal government has kind of washed its hands of COVID, too, if you will. With I think there's a lot of people in the infectious disease space that have been burnt out from COVID. And so both at the federal government level and, you know, in hospitals and clinics and so forth. So I think this second whammy is going to be hard for sure. Obviously, we know CDC is supposedly working on updating some of their COVID guidances for schools. FDA is still working very closely on how to update COVID vaccines for this fall. So we should I think in September, probably see some more news on that front. So certainly the government has people to move on both tracks and so forth. But yeah, I do sort of worry just again, it's sort of about some of the exhaustion that are the same people at FDA who, again, are working on COVID vaccines going to need to use some energy to think about how this monkeypox response and how do we track the data on the safety of altering these vaccines and so forth. So I think there is some challenges. And the other thing I've been looking at is, you know, there is this sense that COVID's kind of in the stable place in the U.S., but it's not necessarily a good stable place, right? It's like 100,000 cases a day stable, right. right? Right. So we're sort of at like 400, 500 deaths a day somewhere. It seems like it ranges. Like sometimes it gets closer to 300. Sometimes it's past 400. So we're, it's not great. I guess maybe I shouldn't say stable, but the government is sort of trying to treat it like it's not this big crisis anymore. One of the things I noticed in some of my reporting is for both long COVID and then just COVID in general is it's meant there hasn't been a lot of effort, it seems like, from the government and to continue funding like new treatments for <laughs> COVID and, you know, figuring out how to develop new treatments for long COVID. And I think that's something people are worried about because, again, our habit in the U.S. is to kind of wait and react instead of preemptively preparing. And we probably need some preemptive preparing for things like Paxlovid to potentially no longer work as well. Can we develop drugs that will prevent people from getting long COVID instead of actually getting long COVID? <laughs> and there are certainly like academics and people working on some of this stuff, but they need more funding. They need more guidance from the government around clinical trial design and so forth. And of course, some of this is not the Biden administration's fault. Congress has decided it doesn't really want to fund COVID anymore. <laughs> and so the Biden administration has their hands tied to some degree and they've decided, okay, well, we have to get these new vaccines. So that's meant pulling money from testing or maybe therapeutic work and so forth. Just one quick thing to add. I 
think kind of in the spirit of COVID becoming more of a stable thing, I think there is a conversation about addressing some more COVID funding through the regular appropriations process this cycle and not having it be a big separate emergency bill. I think a lot of times that that's that's just not an option now for COVID or for monkeypox, really. So I think that will be an interesting kind of trend to watch whether Republicans get on board with Democrats, push with that. You know, obviously it probably isn't going to be at the levels that the White House would prefer, but I think there is this potential path forward by the end of the year where we could maybe get some support. Obviously, prioritizing that funding is going to be a difficult decision for the Biden White House, too. Well, hopefully Congress will get some rest over its August recess, come back in September ready to work. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment where we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page at khn.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Rachel, why don't you go first this week? My extra credit, uh, the headline is Conservative Skeptical of Coronavirus Vaccines Battle to Lead a Hospital by Tim Craig in the Washington Post. And I think this is just a really fascinating and kind of scary microcosm of the political leanings of different candidates to lead this hospital system in Florida and kind of the idea that facilities could become politicized almost. And you know, it's hard for me to imagine if there were political leadership at a hospital, like what would the mask policy be? You know, if that could kind of bleed into the policies and if there is this really deepening conservative distrust of hospitals themselves, I think there's been this transition to distrust of public health. And we've been talking about that for a very long time on here. But I think this was just a very scary politicization, um, a seemingly kind of mundane leadership election where a lot of times it's the focus is on academic qualifications or experience in, you know, clinical setting um, or even like business acumen um, as opposed to kind of the politics being a big selling point. So I think it was a wake up call for me and I think a really fascinating read. Yeah, I thought so too. I was just, you know, sort of this is the next step after conservatives try to sort of run for school board. It's like, let's run for the local hospital board. Um Okay, there we go. Alice. Um, mine is a bit terrifying as well. So I have a piece from the AP by Seth Borenstein about how much climate change is worsening infectious diseases. Turns out a lot. This found that more than half of the human infectious diseases that we know of are made worse by things related to climate change. That includes flooding, that includes droughts, that includes warming oceans. And these can be foodborne pathogens. These can be um, animal-borne pathogens. And, you know, it feels like COVID's never going to end, and it feels like there's always some new scary thing on the horizon, and this does not ameliorate those feelings. <laughs> awesome. Sarah. So I took a look at a piece by my colleague Sue Sutter at the Pink Sheet called the U.S. FDA Commissioner Kalef takes on misinformation starting with rumor control and came into, you know, his second term as commissioner saying that combating misinformation in science was going to be a big focus. I think he was thinking about COVID, you know, and some of the vaccine hesitancy and so forth, but other things as well. His initial um, website, which, you know, there's a lot of interesting things to think about here, like the name rumor control, whether that really, you know, sends the message he wants in terms of how serious this is. Obviously, people that are 
sometimes don't like thinking about the government and control of their life. So there's lots of interesting things to look at. I'm, their initial sort of down payment webpage focuses very much on COVID vaccines and, you know, misinformation out there. I think it's an interesting effort, but, you know, probably I've seen lots of good efforts at this over the past two years. So I'm not sure they're really filling a gap. He says he's going to basically take a year, though, to develop a more, you know, thorough misinformation plan and how the FDA would play a part in this. It'll be interesting to see what he does, because some of his sentiments, I think, come from a time and a place where doctors sort of had more control in a sense of what their patients were hearing, right? Because they had less information. So he talked about, he said, like, in the good old days, when I was a cardiologist, there was a hierarchy of information and companies develop products, the FDA adjudicated, and people sort of learn things from their doctors. It does worry me a little bit if that's how he's thinking about this, because I think that the internet exists, you know, we have all these resources to kind of educate ourselves. And I started thinking about, you know, back in the day when people couldn't read the Bible for themselves, right, because they couldn't either read or they did, or it was in Latin. We don't want to go back to a time where people are just supposed to take information and not think about about it and process it. What we want to do is help people learn, right, how to discern what information is good, what's bad. People should be able to kind of think and form opinions and we have to teach them how to deal with information, not necessarily think about controlling what information <laughs> or who they get it from. So uh, I don't know. I'm just really fascinated to see how he can take this on from an FDA perspective, from a government perspective, and also to see the philosophy he approaches it from. Yeah, I mean, obviously, disinformation is a, is a big issue in a lot of realms, but certainly no more so than in healthcare. Uh, well, my extra credit this week is a piece of accountability journalism from a former KHN editor, Laurie McGinley, who's now at the Washington Post, and it's called For Sleep Apnea Patients with Recalled CPAP Machines, Restless Nights. And it's really reminiscent of the recall we had of all those airbags a few years ago when people knew they were driving around with airbags that could literally blow up in their faces, but there weren't enough new airbags nor technicians to get to all of them in a timely way. Well, now we are experiencing basically that same thing with CPAP machines, those air blowers that help people with sleep apnea continue to breathe through the night. Royal Phillips, the Dutch conglomerate that makes the majority of machines used in the United States, discovered that the foam that's used to muffle the noise in the machine's motor could disintegrate and the particles could be inhaled by patients. Not a good thing. But while the machines were recalled more than a year ago, the company has repaired or replaced only only about half of the 2.8 million recalled products. Now the company and the FDA are arguing about how dangerous the machines really are and how hard the company has tried to reach customers. Not hard enough, says the FDA. And of course, as usual, patients are caught in the middle. It's a really good story. All right, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our producer, Francis Ying, who makes the weekly magic happen. As always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Sarah? I'm at Sarah Carlin. Alice? At Alice Olstein. Rachel? At Rachel Kors. We will be back in your feed next week. Until then, be healthy.